A reading from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Heights. Uh, congratulations, those of you who have not yet gone down with this uh, flu. I had a number of texts this morning with people saying, I'm out, I'm down. <laughs> so uh, well done, all of you. Uh, well done, Elliot, for infecting your whole family and taking them down with you. <laughs> I bet they're grateful for that. Okay, uh, so we're carrying on our series, Words That Changed the World. And uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to start by trying to explain something which I tried to explain in November. And what happens is, when there's a new idea, at least when it's somewhat new to me, uh, and I bring that idea out for the first time and I'm trying it out, it, it makes a little bit of sense to a few people, but it doesn't really connect with life. Then the second time I bring it out, it makes a little bit more sense to a few more people, and uh, it's only vaguely connected with life. By the third time, or maybe the fourth time, then I've got a really good way of saying it, and it makes sense to everyone, and everyone's making all sorts of connections with, with this to, to the rest of life, which is great when that happens. I'm just letting you in on my process, okay? So, so just that, having said that, this is just the second time. So my grand ambition this morning is that this is going to make a little bit more sense to a few more people, but only be vaguely connected with life, okay? So this is, it's good to set expectations, okay? So here, here goes. Um, eschatology, this is a uh, sort of uh, theological jargon or theological technical term, and it's this idea that... Um, History is, is this meaningful sequence of events, and it's, it's meaningful because it's actually going somewhere. It's all leading up to something. Eschatology is this idea that world events are actually moving in a determined fashion uh, along this path towards a predetermined, foreordained uh, goal. Uh, so we've got this definition up here. History is a meaningful sequence of events moving toward a foreordained goal. Um, and the Christian version of this looks something like this. Uh, ultimately, God is taking history somewhere. This history reaches its apex with Jesus Christ, and now we are doing our best to trust and live in that direction. That's more or less the, the, the Christian view of Christ the, the vital ingredients for Christian es eschatology. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that everyone here believes this. I know that, that some of you won't, and, and you may have good reason not to, uh, and, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, as I often say here, though, let's just make sure we're getting the story straight, right? Let, let's, let's just make sure we're getting the story straight before we pick it apart and, and evaluate it. And then we, once we get the story straight, then we can uh, do all the evaluating we want. Having said that, even though this view of things may seem a little strange to a few of you here this morning, and it may seem a very strange thing to be talking about in 2020 in, in New York City of all places. Really, do people think like this, right? Uh, having said that, actually, 
This view of things, this scheme, this Christian narrative has so come to utterly dominate Western thinking that it's actually very difficult to um, operate or think outside these categories and without these categories. And I think one of the reasons is, is because this scheme of things offers hope. Hope for ourselves, hope for each other, hope for the world, hope like nothing else. It offers us hope, and it's very difficult to live without hope. We need hope to live. And, and so what we've done, instead of just sort of, in, in an increasingly secularized society, right, what we've done, instead of just jettisoning and, and ditching all this whole scheme, what we've done is we've found some sort of secular substitutes, some secular, secular replacements. So this is what the secular version looks like. The story is no longer guided by God, but is guiding itself from within. The story didn't reach its apex in Jesus, but it reached its apex in the secular enlightenment. We must all get on the right side of history by spreading and advancing knowledge and liberty and, and, and all of that. Um, and this idea, I hope you can see, is, is sort of everywhere. It permeates uh, secular culture. Right? This is why people talk about progress. We talk about progress because we've got some scheme like this in, in our heads. And uh, secularized people will talk about getting on the right side of history. That's, a, that's always used as a threat these days, right? That's used a lot. You've got to be on the right side of history because you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? You hear that? You hear that a lot. Um, so this is everywhere. The only trouble is, is that as numerous uh, atheistic philosophers have pointed out, uh, Jürgen Habermas, I was just reading him saying this the other day, he, he says, he says this, you take God out of the picture and this whole scheme makes absolutely no sense. There is no, history is not a meaningful series of events going somewhere. History is a series of random, utterly meaningless events going absolutely nowhere. And the, here, here's the thing, if that's the case, then there is no right side of history or wrong side of, if there's no right side of history, there's no wrong side of history. And, and for those of you who, who may be more agnostic or atheist, um, this, this should be somewhat liberating. This should be somewhat liberating for you because, you know, whenever someone talks about being, oh, you're on the wrong side of history, all, all that means is they're just asserting their preference. They're, they're asserting their own particular set of prejudice, right? Uh, and, and really, you don't have to be, they can't enforce that, or they can't sort of impose that on you. You, you don't have to be bound by that. And so there's this, this freedom there. You can, you can say, well, no, there is, there's no wrong, this, history's not going anywhere. You, you, you know what history is, right? As they say, it's just one damn thing after another, right? No, that's, that's what history is. So, why are we talking about this? Because, because this is the vital context into which we can receive and understand the words of Jesus. This is the vital context in which, which gives meaning to Jesus' words, when he, these radical words, when he says, love your enemy. Love your enemy. I, I think sometimes we lose a sense of how radical in nature, the, the radical nature of these words. Uh, I, I, was, I just want to first of all just recognize that. I was sitting watching uh, a, a part of a, a European Union assembly. Um, I don't normally, but Brexit's been going on and all of that, right? So I, I was sitting watching that because of the Brexit thing. I've got a special vested interest in that, right? So. Um, and, and this, this woman was standing up and lecturing the entire assembly on how we must never, ever hate people. We must never, ever hate anyone. Um, 
And so sometimes we, we just hear this and it just seems everyone's nodding and going, yeah, that, of course, that's, that's right. But, but, but actually, this is radical, these are radical words. My, my brother lived in China for eight years in different, different parts of China. And, and he was just telling me the other day, he, sa he said in, in the parts of China he was living, it was just a matter of national pride to hate the Japanese. So it's just a matter of national pride to hate the Japanese. Uh, and uh, if in parts of the Muslim world, it is just a matter of loyalty to Allah to hate Israel. It's just what it means to be loyal to God, right? So, so these are actually radical words, uh, and, it, and it's interesting to when we when we hear someone in, in a secularized institution like the European Union, which um, refuses to acknowledge its sort of uh, in, in its constitution its, its uh, Christian history. There's this sort of European Christian history uh, that they recognize the Roman pagan and, and, and Greek pagan history, but they don't, they don't. The Pope actually said, maybe you want to mention the last couple of millennia of, of church history. Nah, nah, we, we don't need that. But then someone gets up in the European Union Assembly and starts saying this stuff. And what we're hearing when they're saying that are Jesus' words echoing down through the centuries of church history, as checkered as that, as that is. So these are radical words. The second thing I want to recognize is that these, these words are the most powerful. The, the, these words have had their greatest effect, have been the most effective, when people have understood that these words are not simply another moral injunction. They're not. They're not another moral injunction. They're not another uh, way to be more spiritual. This is a high, it's not just a, a higher uh, a personal uh, ethic. It, I'm not saying it isn't those things. Of course, there's a, there's a moral injunction here. There's a higher personal ethic. There's a better spirituality. I, I think so. But it's much more than that. It's much more than that. Encoded in these words, to love your enemy, is the goal of Christian eschatology and therefore the goal of all Christian hope. Encoded in these words is the goal of Christian eschatology and the goal of all Christian hope. It's Jesus is saying, look... This is where everything is heading. This is where God is taking everything. This is, if you like, another way of saying this is this is these, this command, love your enemies, is really the Christian view of history brought to a very sharp point. And so Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Why would God do that? Why is he sending, why is he sending the, the, the son on the evil and the good, sending the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? Because it is God's anticipation and God's ambition that humanity will be reconciled to him and will be reconciled to each other. And so he keeps on sending the rain and he keeps making the sun to shine. Not just on you, Israel. Not just on you, Israel. But on on the whole world, on everyone, not just on you, on everyone. The evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous, right? This, the rain and the sun are just Jesus' way of saying, look, this is where God is taking everything. This is God's ambition for humanity. And it is out of this hope and this uh, ambition, this Christian view of history brought to a sharp point, that Jesus says this. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So imagine we blow this off and go, nah, 
I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hate my enemies. I'm going to confine my love to those who love me. They love me, I'll love them back. And I'm going to, just, I'm going to greet those who greet me. I'm, I'm going to embrace those who are already part of my tribe, my, my people. The others, I've got nothing to do with them. Imagine we do that. What we're doing in that moment, just to underline the point, we're not, we're not breaking another moral, it's not just breaking another moral command. It's, it's, not, it's not just that we're less spiritual now. It's, it's not just that we are somehow feeling um, we've got a lower sort of a personal ethic. It's, not, it's more than that, right? What it means is when we blow Jesus off like that, what, what, what it means is we don't understand where everything is heading. Or, and this is the darker side of this, and I find myself here sometimes, we don't like where everything is heading. You ever find that? But either way, whether we don't understand where history is heading, or we don't like where history is heading, the fact is, is that we find ourselves, in that case, on the wrong side of history. <laughs> to, to coin that, to use that dreadful phrase, right? But in this context, in the, in, the, in the context of Christian eschatology, it actually makes sense to use that phrase, right? We find ourselves on the wrong side of history. You know, uh, I, was, I was talking about this with a, a friend on, on the way here, and, and he was saying, yeah, if you were going to design, if you're going to design a religion, you know, we leave this bit out, right? I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a terrible idea. Um, love your enemies is this call to bring God's future forward. It is his call for us to embody in the here and now God's ambition for the future of humanity. It is, as I said, the Christian view of history brought to a very sharp point. And it is this lingering sense of Christian history that hangs over us in secular form, like we talked about earlier, in which the command to love our enemies emerges, still emerges at surprising times in unexpected places. Uh, after more than 80 people were mowed down by a lorry in Nice in France, do you remember that attack? And then there was a priest shortly after who had his throat cut and killed right there in the communion service in church. And there was various other attacks in an 18-month period. I mean, France was just getting hammered with one attack after another. Um, and this article came out in the... Um, and the BBC, which, uh, to, honestly, I'm not a big fan. Um, I know Tim is. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Uh, but I love your enemies and all that. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to read you, I'm going to read you a, a section of, of this. I won't read you the whole uh, article. But it said this. The murder, uh, the murder of Father Jacques Hamel has triggered a bout of reflection among the French on a subject they normally avoid, their relationship with Catholicism and Christian ethics. Like most European countries, France is in a post-religious phase of its history. Few attend church, and politicians who speak of Judeo-Christian values are often dismissed as right-wing throwbacks. Oh, the irony. And yet, what the reaction to the jihadi murder campaign of the last 18 months shows is that people are far more influenced by their cultural and religious inheritance than they care to realize. Since the killings began, there have been no crowds on the streets of Nice or Paris chanting death to Islamic State. They've been lighting candles of remembrance instead. The Archbishop of Rouen said that in the church of Saint-Étienne, there were three victims. Really? Yeah, there were three victims, he says. Father Jacques, who had his throat cut, and the two killers, 
Forgive them, for they know not what they do, were the words he later quoted from the gospel. It is also telling that no one in the country was shocked by the church's reaction to the murder of one of their own. No thirst for vengeance, no anathema against Islam, instead a plea for forbearance and understanding. As the Archbishop of Paris put it, our belief in Christ should make us now not fighters and militants, but men of peace, reconciliation, and love. Broadly stripping out some of the religious language, this is the same message that the politicians are giving out. The constant argument is this. The aim of ISIS is to make us hate each other. They want our Muslim population to be isolated. They want acts of vengeance. Never let us cede to that temptation. Of course, this might change, but so far, no one is bound to, so far one is bound to observe that the country has reacted to this horrific succession of provocations with an eye on the higher values. And the article ends with this, uh, I think, a wry observation. It says, most French people will argue that these values, tolerance, respect between peoples, forgiveness, a school of violence, love, are part of the country's enlightened secular tradition. But of course, before that, they were something else. They were Christian. Honestly, I was shocked to, to find an article like that on, on the BBC, but, but there you go. And, and it says, again, again, what we're hearing there in these voices is Jesus' words echoing down through centuries. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. God makes the sun shine on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There may be someone who has hurt you badly, and you can't, as we're sitting here talking about this, you just can't even begin to imagine loving that person, being reconciled to that person, being in relationship with that person. They've just they've wounded you. They've hurt you badly. Um, and so when Jesus says, love your enemy, you, you have someone in mind. We all have people in our lives who are harder to, to love at different points. Um, and so you may have, when you hear these words, love your enemies, you have someone specific in mind. Now, I know some of you do, because you grimace when I said that, right? I'm, I'm kidding, I didn't see anyone grimace, all right? But I'm just, I'm just saying, this, this may be quite personal. You're not alone. When Jesus first uttered these words, when these radical words came out of his mouth, right? the, the people he was talking to, this, this wasn't, when he says love your enemies, this wasn't a hypothetical enemy. Right? This, the, the people he was talking to knew that the enemy had a name and Jesus didn't even have to name who the enemy was because everyone knew their name and it was Rome and they were under this terrible occupation so, so get out I often have to try and underline this there was nothing benevolent about this occupation you, you know, you know it's particularly inhumane you know, you know that phrase death and taxes death and taxes are the most certain thing in life Rome made that a truism Right? Tax rebellion, come in, slaughter you all, crucify tens of thousands, right? So, so this is, there's nothing kind or gentle about this occupation, as if occupations ever are, right? So Jesus is fully aware of the problematic nature of what he's asking them to do. And so the way he frames this, as, as we've been trying to do, is just as important as the command itself. That's why he embeds the command to love our enemies in this particular view of God and history, in which God continues to make his appeal, sending the sun, sending the rain, sending the sun, sending the rain, not just on you, on them as well, waiting for reconciliation. 
And if Jesus invites Israel to hear his words in that context, in that view of history, then perhaps we should do that too. And I'll, I'll be honest, just, just personally speaking, reading Jesus' words around this command has been incredibly helpful. When I found it difficult to love someone, and I, and I can't even imagine reconciliation, rather than focus on my personal conflict, my personal hurt, my personal enmity, it's often helped, well, not even to set it aside, not even to set aside my personal hurt and my personal feelings of enmity and, and try and stuff those feelings deep down. No, but to take my personal conflict, my real hurt and my feelings of enmity and put it into the broader context of God's ambition for humanity. So that it's no longer just about me and the person I don't like who's in front of me. Sometimes I get so, in those situations I get really myopic. But it's no, when I do that, it's no longer about what Jesus is doing. He's saying it's no longer about you and the person you don't like. There's more at stake here. Jesus is inviting us to participate in God's future now. Jesus is asking me to get involved in God's project of cosmic reconciliation. And so it is perhaps that before I can even begin to imagine my way into reconciliation with a specific person, right? We have to imagine our way into that story first of all. And that's why Jesus frames it the way he does. And for those of us who can't imagine friendship and wholehearted forgiveness with the person who's really hurt you, Jesus gives us a place to begin. It's, it's great. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies, he says. And then right afterwards, he says, pray for those who persecute you. He says, look, begin here. You know, prayer is such a vital part. We spent two weeks talking about prayer. It's such a vital part of reshaping, reconstructing the Christian imagination. And he suggests, okay, if you can't imagine loving your mortal enemy, how about you start by greeting those who are not your own? I can just imagine the, the people in the crowd going, is he asking us to say hello to the occupation soldiers? I think that's what he just asked us to do. Jesus says, start here. Start by greeting those who are not your own. Start by praying for your enemies. Can you reconcile right now and have an entirely restored relationship with your enemy today? That, that may take time and work. We have to practice this in various ways at different levels of intensity with different relationships and by doing so, keep feeding the Christian imagination for this. So of course the application, Jesus gives us the application, right? I'm not gonna make one up, Jesus gives it to us. It's just pray, start praying for your enemy. So who are you gonna start praying for? Who's on that list? Who's on the top of that list? Don't, to the, don't turn to the person sitting next to you and say, how do I spell your name again? Okay, <laughs> just, we just make that list in your head, right? Start praying for them. I, I was just talking to someone on Tuesday night in our community group, and they said, yeah, there were three people who had a beef with her. She had a beef with them. There was, a, there was an issue last year, and she said, you know what I had to do? I just had to wait. I said, how did it get resolved? She said, I'd start praying for them. Start here, Jesus says. Start praying for them. And who are the group of people who are not your own? Those people who see the world entirely differently from the way you do. Who are those people? Just think about it. Add them to your list. How are you going to greet them? How are you going to welcome them? How are you going to embrace those people into your life? How are you going to fold them into your life? Right? You've, you've kept them at arm's length. How are you going to fold those people into your life? 
because this, this is crucial work, reconstructing the Christian imagination, because the, the Christian community that cannot imagine reconciliation with our enemies, cannot imagine loving our enemies, that's not even a possibility, is probably not a Christian community at all. Just isn't. Because loving our enemies, so that we have no enemies, that's, what, that's where Jesus is taking everything. Loving our enemies so that we have no enemies is not just another moral injunction. It's not just about how to be more spiritual. It's not just about having a higher personal ethic. It is, in fact, the goal of Christian hope and the Christian view of history brought to a sharp point. Let's pray. Love our enemies. Father, open up our hearts to this. Help us take those first steps. Help us to begin praying for our enemies, which in itself may seem like an impossible task. But by your Spirit, help us to pray and help us to greet and welcome and embrace those who may not readily greet, welcome, or embrace us. May we recognize you, the God who sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, who makes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, in the hope of reconciliation. Help us to place all our enmity, our hurt, our conflict in that context of your future hope for humanity, your view of history and where everything is going. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.